It's really good to be together as the Journey Church community. My name is Brian Hopkins. I'm Journey's lead pastor, and what a privilege it is to share this day with every single one of you. I've just got to tell you that I've been wandering around this building uh, all about for the last 10 days or so. The staff moved in last Thursday, and I've just sort of been like this, just sort of agape at the goodness of God For about the last two weeks, every time I would come out here and uh, this campus and this building would come into view through uh, the windshield of my car, uh, I'd just kind of turn into a blubbering baby and I'd just get all emotional and all choked up and so, so overwhelmed by the goodness of our God and all the ways, the myriad ways that God has been active in our community to bring us to this point. And we all, every last one of us, We have so much to be grateful to God for, don't we? We have so much. And one of the things that we have to be most grateful to God for is the literal army. And I mean army of people who have been pouring blood, sweat, and tears into this deal to make sure that we could be actually in here today. So here's what I want to do. If you've worked on this project in any way, maybe you were a subcontractor, maybe you were a volunteer, all the way from last winter until like, five o'clock yesterday afternoon or so, uh, getting this place ready. Would you just stand to your feet? And we just want to say thank you. Don't be shy. Just stand up. There's all kinds of you sitting up. Come on. Just stand up. Yeah. Way to go. Way to go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Way to go. There were a whole bunch of all-nighters pulled all week long to make this uh, day happen. And there were lots of people who were in here, even on Friday, looking around going like, we ain't going to make it. We ain't going to make it, and well, God is good, and we made it. And it feels really, really good to be in here, doesn't it? Uh, we thought the parking would be a plenty, so we'll work on that. The lobby is quite spacious and airy and fun, right? Next weekend, I'm sorry we didn't make it for this weekend, but next weekend, the coffee will have foam on the top of it. If you go down to that end, down there, the east end, there'll be this coffee deal that you can actually pay money for to have foam on the top of your coffee. That little place down there, that'll be called The Common Grounds. Get it? Ah, uh, yeah. That'll be at the east end. Of, yeah, the free stuff will still be right out here available to you. Uh, but next weekend, coffee will have foam. And then, aren't these chairs lovely? Isn't that lovely? It's kind of like what you hear or at least want to hear at the airport when you step up to the counter. You've been upgraded to first class. It's kind of what, and if you grab to the right, the little footrest comes out. So those are pretty cool right here. Did you try that? Yeah, just kidding. Not- <laughs> good. The sound in this room is epic. And look at my ugly mug, larger than life, on those big old screens. That's me, 16 by 9, and I'm going to have to resume the Botox injections, I'm afraid. And you take all that stuff, all of that stuff, and you kind of go like, what more could a person ask for in a building that a church meets in, right? What more could a person ask for? It's just fantastic. And I want to say, and I want to be very, very clear, and I want to be quite emphatic about this, while this building is really nice, and quite comfortable, I want you to know that Journey Church's role, mission, and purpose does not change, neither for us as individuals nor for us as a church community, just because we got a building now. It does not change. Our primary role is still to make Jesus as available as possible to as many people as possible in as many ways 
as possible. And we're going to be faced as a church community starting this week with the temptation to just sort of settle in and get comfortable and get like all latteed up and all fat and happy, right? Because, well, look, we got ourselves a building now and we don't have to set up and tear down every weekend. We don't have to find six different venues for all the ministries of our church to meet in and we don't have to haul stuff in trailers and cars and pickups all over kingdom come and make sure we get the right stuff to the right place, etc. And so the temptation really will be for us to just sort of settle in and sort of have this ah kind of moment, right? That'll be our temptation. And the temptation will be that we would lose our ragged edge of faith demeanor that's been who Journey's been since we started over five years ago. And so I want to step right into the middle of that, and I want to talk with all of us today about how we understand God's view of buildings, what history can and should teach us about what this building, the commons at Baxter and Love, can and should do for us. And I got to tell you right at the outset, so there's no accusation of bait and switch or anything, no surprises, that God's modus operandi when it comes to the buildings churches build in the 21st century is all about making him more available to people. That's what it is all about making him more available to people. So let's go back in history. Let's start with a brief survey of history of what role buildings have played in the lives of God's people in the past. If you were to open up your Bible to the Old Testament of the Bible, that's the front section of the Bible, you would read about how God gave very specific directions regarding the house of God and the furnishings that would facilitate the worship and sacrifice for the Jewish people, the Israelites. Those instructions began with the specifications of the Ark of the Covenant, didn't they? You you remember the Ark of the Covenant, the one that Indiana Jones went looking for in the 1980s? And so if you've got a Bible, you could turn to Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 10. Exodus 25, verse 10, you can follow along on the screens on your notes page, or if you've got a text, open it up. And here's what the Bible says, Exodus 25, this is about how the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be built. Directions from God. Have the people make an Ark of Acacia wood... A sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold. Run the molding of gold all around it. Cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Make poles from acacia wood. Overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark to carry it. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings. Never remove them. When the ark is finished, place inside of it the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give you. What are those stone tablets more commonly known as? The Ten Commandments. That's exactly right. Put those inside of there. And God continues. Then make the ark's cover, the place of atonement, from pure gold. Do you see a gold theme running throughout here? It must be 45 inches long, 27 inches wide. Then make two cherubim from hammered gold. Place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. Mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all of one piece of gold. That's a honking piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover. With their wings spread above it, they will protect it. And again, just in case they missed it the first time, God reiterates his direction. Uh, just so nobody put the Ten Commandments on like a bookshelf in an office or something. Now place in the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give to you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. It is very specific, is it not? And if you kept reading there, you'd see that the instructions get just as specific for the altar, for the table, for the lampstand, 
all of the other furnishings that accompanied the Ark of the Covenant. Then God gave the instructions. He handed them down for building the tabernacle and its accompanying courtyard. Now, what's a tabernacle, you're asking? Well, it's a portable tent that would have been set up and taken down as the Israelites moved around from place to place. That's a lot like our journey roadie crew has been doing around here for the past five years. The roadie crew is our set-up and tear-down team. The men and women who came early and stayed late to set up Heritage Christian School and then put it all away. Take heart, roadie crew. The Israelites were a portable church just like you, and someday you'll be in heaven with these people, and you can swap stories about the misery of being a portable church. You are in great company. And the narrative continues. The nation and people of Israel, they're taken captive by this global superpower of the day called Egypt. They did not have nuclear capability, at least that we know of in that day. And you know how the story unfolds. God eventually leads his people out of that captivity. About 400 years after that, he allowed finally the people and nation of Israel to enjoy a season of peace and prosperity under the leadership of a man named King Solomon. And what a man he was. And it was King Solomon, that's King David's son, remember. King Solomon is the one who began to construct the very first permanent temple for God. The one true living God. And again, this temple for God, the first permanent temple, it was supposed to be constructed with very, very specific directions. Second Chronicles chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Check it out. Follow along on the screens or in your text. These are the dimensions Solomon used for the foundation of the temple of God using the old standard of measurement. It was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide. The entry room at the front of the temple was 30 feet wide, running across the entire width of the temple and 30 feet high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. We got more gold going on. He paneled the main room of the temple with cypress wood, overlaid it with fine gold, decorated it with carvings of palm trees and chains. It's an interesting decorating motif, isn't it? He decorated the walls of the temple with beautiful jewels, with gold from the land of Parvam. He overlaid the beams, thresholds, walls, and doors throughout the temple with more gold. And he carved figures of cherubim on the walls. The detail is remarkable. A prescribed set of materials, cedar, stone, gold. Every last detail was spelled out all the way down to the size and the makeup of the ornaments. Even, check this out, the how of the construction of God's first permanent temple was specified the how. Each stone that went into the construction of that temple was to be dressed, that's a mason's word, dressed at the quarry so that the sounds of hammers would not be heard at the temple site. Apparently the sound of hammers is irritating to God or annoying to the neighbors or something. And so the temple finally gets built. Solomon has this fantastic worship service in which he dedicates that space. And for the next 1,000 years, that temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem, the subsequent synagogues that sort of served as satellites of the temple that went up all over the known world, served as the places that people would go to worship God, be taught his law, be taught his principles, have sacrifices offered for their sin. But then a very remarkable thing took place. And all of history swings on this hinge. You know what it is? It's the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, isn't it? Now, lots and lots of us know that story, don't we? Jesus comes to earth. He's born an infant. God become flesh the very first Christmas. And Jesus lived here on earth He was live and in the flesh. He grew up, yes. 
Jesus Christ himself went through the awkward years of adolescence. And then when it was time, Jesus launched what scholars call his public ministry. He chose his disciples, he taught the masses, he healed, he raised people from the dead, he walked on water, he prayed, and then one day he was sold out by one of his closest friends, one of his very own followers. That selling out led to Jesus Christ being arrested. And then he was put through what you would call a sham of a trial, wasn't he? And he was beaten, and he was hung on a cruel wooden cross where he died. And you listen to all that and you go, good night. Jesus Christ endured all of that. And you want to know why he endured all of that? Simply because he loves you. He endured all of that for no other reason than because he loves you. And if you were the only person on planet earth, he still would have died on the cross. He loves you that much. And the scriptures, the New Testament now of the Bible, speak of that moment. The moment that Jesus Christ died, Luke chapter 23, check this out, starting in verse 44. This is somber stuff. By this time it was noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. That normally doesn't happen, does it? The light from the sun was gone, the Bible says, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Now, did you catch verse 45? It is of particular import. Suddenly, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. That is an incredibly profound moment, folks, especially as we sit in this room on this day and open a new facility to the ministries of Journey Church as well as to the wider community at large because you see that curtain in the sanctuary of the temple that was torn down the middle top to bottom is an enormous deal. Now I tried to get you a photograph of that curtain but cameras hadn't been invented yet and there's this Google thing and there's all kinds of hype about Google can find anything. Well they ain't got a picture of the curtain from the temple on it And so the first century historian Josephus' description of that curtain will have to suffice. So see if you can picture this thing in your mind just a wee bit. This is what Josephus had to say about that curtain. It was a magnificent Babylonian curtain of blue, scarlet, and purple, symbolically representing the universe. That's a very male description of the curtain, isn't it? He leaves us hanging on quite a bit of the detail, but can you catch at least a bit of a glimpse of that thing? A magnificent Babylonian curtain, blue, scarlet, purple. It's thick, inches thick, scholars say, made of a thick, heavy, woven material, which some guy standing at the top of a ladder trying to tear it down the middle could not have torn that thing down the middle. And that curtain hung from top to bottom, from ceiling all the way to the floor, roughly 30 feet, as the Bible says. That's almost three stories tall. That's about twice as high as these curtains are back here behind me. And that curtain served a very specific purpose. It separated what they called the holy place, out where the priests ministered, from the presence of God inside of what they call the holy of holies, which uh, in Hebrew, the words holy of holies means stay out of here unless you want to die. Not really, but sort of. That curtain was the divider that separated where the priests went to do what they did and the place where the presence of God dwelled, where God lived, where God hung out. 
And it was kind of like, God, you stay on your side of the curtain and we'll stay on ours and that'll be cool. Everyone will be real happy if we just do that. And this is powerful stuff, folks. Because you see, when Jesus died at three o'clock in the afternoon on that first Good Friday, that big old honking curtain tore right down the middle in a way that could only, and I mean only, be supernatural. Which means that the moment that Christ died, and then of course his subsequent resurrection, the moment that Christ died forever changed how we human beings could and would relate to God. That then subsequently changed the role of the places and the spaces that are used, were used to worship God. God. That curtain that was torn down the middle represented the barrier that only the high priest, only the high priest, in accordance with very specific ceremonial rites, could pass by to access God, to make sacrifices for the rest of the people of Israel. But get this, Jesus was the perfect, sinless son of God. His death meant that once and for all, he had become our sacrifice once for all time. There wasn't any need anymore for these other high priests to approach God on our behalf. Jesus became our one and only high priest, the only one we need. That meant that God was forever and always available and accessible to every single person on planet Earth. He's not hanging out in the Holy of Holies anymore. That curtain being symbolically and miraculously torn in two was all about God busting out, becoming approachable to you. Becoming approachable to you. Approachable to me. Now, if you fast forward and you step into the book of Acts, which is the chronicle of the very first Christian church in all of history, Acts tells us that the first few weeks after his resurrection, Jesus continued to hang out. He had fellowship with his disciples. He taught them during that time. He gave them instructions to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8. Townley talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Last week, as a matter of fact. You can get the CD if you want to pick that up. Nearly two months then, after the resurrection of Christ, they were gathered, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. They're in one place, just as Jesus had instructed them to do. And all of a sudden, this crazy thing happened, the day of Pentecost, and all of those Christ followers in that room were filled with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit was the official sign that God no longer dwelled behind curtains in places and in spaces or in buildings or in tents, but instead he dwelled in the hearts of his people, us, you and me. And then if you fast forward through the rest of the Bible from Acts on, there's no more instruction from God regarding the design of buildings for worship and ministry anymore. The instructions shift gears entirely. Quite dramatically, they shift gears. If you read the rest of the Bible from Acts on, you see God's word directs us that we're to be fully devoted to him. And just be fully devoted to him. Fully devoted to each other. Fully devoted to the teaching of God's word and fellowship with other Christ followers. The breaking of bread and prayer and such. God's instructions from that point on are about us growing up in our relationship with Christ. God teaches that we would and should love him with everything in us, every fiber of our being. None of this half-hearted commitment stuff. Every fiber of our being, all in with him. And then treat others, love others with the same love and respect that we ourselves desire. No more instructions about spaces and places that house those kinds of activities. Which means for us and all church communities from that point forward, we're left to discern how God would have us as a community express his availability to their community, to their context, through the buildings that they 
build? How do we make God more and more available? How do we contextualize making God more and more available to people? There's no God blueprint handed down from heaven anymore for what church buildings should or shouldn't look like, should or shouldn't be. It would appear, as a matter of fact, from the historical evidence that the first church, the earliest Christians, they met in homes, caves, in the open air, basically any place they could meet. And from what scholars can gather, the earliest buildings of the first Christian church, they were just homes. Small, domestic, secular in nature. When I say secular, that means there wasn't like religious art adorning the walls of those homes. There were no crosses hanging around in those spaces, I assure you, because Christians were still being hung up on crosses. They weren't saying, whoa, that's the symbol of our... No. No way. I guarantee you that nobody ever walked into one of those early house churches and said, where's the cross? And then turned around and walked out if they didn't see one in that space. And the earliest church's understanding of where they could and should meet came from their underlying belief that when it comes to spiritual activity, it's the people who are significant, not the space. It's the people who are significant, not what the room looks like. And it's Jesus Christ's own example that is the source of our understanding. Jesus himself, he visited synagogues, absolutely, but he didn't limit his work and fellowship to any four walls. The Bible, as a matter of fact, teaches that us, you and me, we are the new temples in which God dwells, not physical buildings. Buildings are tools. They're just tools to be used for worship, education, prayer, fellowship. And while certainly buildings can and should be consecrated to God, which was the heart of that prayer I prayed a little bit ago, he no more dwells in the carpet or concrete or wood than he does in a video projector or a hymnal. He just doesn't. That means for us, Journey, the commons at Baxter in Love, it's just another tool in our tool belt. Another tool through which we engage and serve the community around us because that is who we are, that is what we do in the pattern and example of Jesus Christ himself who came only to serve. We built this place as a community center because we are convinced beyond the shadow of any doubt that God wants to do amazing and even special things when we set about trying to make him more and more and more available, as available as he has made himself. Now, let me give you a little for instance. Right now, there's some guys around Journey who are looking around at this campus, the 40 acres, and they're like, you know, this community needs some more soccer fields. And so they've asked, could we build some soccer fields? And we're like, absolutely, that would be fantastic. Now, that's a little paradigm bending, isn't it? Because to some people, churches don't build soccer fields because that's not what churches do, right? Some people hold to the view that God doesn't give a rip about soccer. Some people adhere to the belief even that soccer is some unholy activity, some sort of common activity, What does soccer, after all, have to do with people's spiritual development? That, just so you know, is not in any way our view. We think that soccer matters to God. We think recreation and fun matters to God and that he does actually care about all of that. And so let me just run out an eventuality for you, if I could, purely hypothetical. What if there's a family, just picture the average family in our community who has very low spiritual interest? What if once these soccer fields are built, they begin to drive out here and drop their kids off for practice and then begin to come out here to watch games like lots of parents will do this afternoon all over the city? And they come out here over and over and over again, 
dropping their kids off, watching games and such. And then something begins to happen internally. They begin to go like, what, what is this commons deal? What in the world is this? Who built this field and what is that crazy building over there? What are the commons? And they begin from other people to begin to assemble the facts about this church called Journey that set aside that land so that those fields could go in, so that this building could be built to be given away for no other reason than to be given away to the Gallatin Valley community to use. And well, what do you know? That same church happens to meet in that building on that campus that they've been showing up at practices and games at. And then internally, this is just what if? What if? That family begins to ponder what kind of church would provide the space for my kids to play soccer like why why would they do that why would a church community care that much about my kids and what kind of church would build a building and not just say and this is ours nobody else can use it but what kind of a church would say no this is yours community we built this for you please use it and they begin to ask those kinds of questions And it begins to mess with their view of church, doesn't it? Because in their historical perspective, that's not what churches do. That's not who churches are. But something about that resonates in their spirit. And what if because their curiosity has been piqued, says, I want to see what a church community that is about that, I want to see what else they're about because that just feels right to me. That feels to me like something that a church should be about, which this is just a what if. What if then ran out to the place of that family walking in here for a weekend worship gathering a lot like this one or walking into one of our multiple other ministries across the life of our church where their spiritual journey can begin or continue depending on where they are on the spiritual spectrum. But I gotta tell you, that's a cool thing that just might transpire there, but I gotta tell you, that kind of transaction can't even begin to happen if we're stuck in the old model of what the church is and isn't. If we're still trying to keep God stuck back in the holy of holies, inaccessible and unavailable to the real lives of real people. If we're still living like that temple curtain is somehow still intact. And because that's how we think of this space And this campus, it's a tool through which ministry happens. That means, and I know I run a grave risk of offending a bunch of people when I say this, but it doesn't make it any less true just because it's offensive. That means that this building is not in any way sacred. Hear me very clearly. This building is not in any way sacred. It is just a building. And just to prove to you that it is just a building and there's nothing sacred about it, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. You all right with that? A little secret, just keep it between us Please don't tell anyone, please. But this building, the commons, is a mouse magnet. Seriously, it is a mouse magnet. Now, please do not like start lifting your feet up and freaking out because we have professional exterminators who are on it with us. We're handling it professionally. There's absolutely no health risk unless you're a mouse. But this thing is a magnet for mice. And, and I'm, like, we sort of stumbled into this. We're like, oh my gosh, there's mice everywhere in here. And what do you expect, right? I mean, you put a building up in the middle of a field that's been nothing but a farm for the past hundred years or so, and the mice, they start calling up their friends and relatives saying, hey, these crazy people, they put up like the Hilton for us to winter in. Come on over, right? Whew. 
And I just tell you that to ask the question, don't you think that if this was sacred space to God himself, that he would miraculously repel the mice because he doesn't want his sacred space to be all like mousy? This building, the land that it sits on, it is not holy. It is not sacred. It's what happens inside of here and out on the rest of the campus in the lives of people that is sacred, that is important. It's the ministry to people that will go on in here day in and day out that's sacred. It's that that's important. The worship, the teaching of the Bible, the fellowship, the basketball, the community gatherings. The volleyball, for crying out loud, the laser tag that will happen in here with our student ministry department in just a few hours from now, that's what's sacred, that's what's holy, that's what's holy, that's what's important, folks. And all that activity and all that ministry is sacred and important because it has the exact same effect that the temple curtain being torn down the middle is about. It's making Jesus available and accessible to as many people as possible in as many ways as possible. That is what it's all about. That old temple system, that old mentality with its very limited, very strictly regulated means of access to God, folks, it is dead, gone, and buried. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what he came to turn on its head. That's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the entire New Testament for that matter. It's about a new, utterly different view of how we human beings interact with God. He's available to one, he's available to all, and he's in the process of breaking into this world all around you, all around me. And he's in the process of breaking into the world through our lives, folks. That's how he's breaking in. And he's asking you and he's asking me to make him available to every person in our life through every means we have at our disposal, through our conversations, for example. Spiritual conversations, not just like surface weather, sports conversations, but through spiritual conversations in which we're pressing in with friends and loved ones and coworkers and classmates and roommates, pointing them toward a relationship with Jesus Christ. When was the last time that you engaged someone in conversation about your faith in Jesus Christ. When was the last time? For some of us, the better question is, why in the world has it been that long? Why in the world has it been so long? Jesus has asked us to make him available through our conversations, and he's asked us to make him available through the way we live, living in a way that reflects him at all times and all ways, the way we treat people we do business with, the way we treat people we employ, the way we conduct ourselves on the field of play, the court of play, the way we raise our kids, the way we lead our families, even down to the way we relate to our neighbors. And I gotta say, I'm utterly and completely embarrassed to tell you what I'm about to tell you right now, but I gotta do it because I think it's right where we're living. At least I think so. We have this daughter, her name is Malia. We have a few daughters actually, but one of them's name is Malia. Uh, she's 11. She just turned 11 on September 1st. It was her first birthday here in the United States of America. She's from Ethiopia, and they don't make anything of birthdays in Ethiopia. As a matter of fact, that September 1st birthday was just assigned by the government of Ethiopia because Malia doesn't even know when she was born. So it's this is sort of date randomly picked out of the air, and it is her birthday, September 1st, and she's loving the birthday deal 
in the United States. This is so cool. We have this big old family party, and she gets absolutely spoiled with gifts from the entire family. And she's loving it so much that she just kind of wants it to continue. So she sidles up next to Dana and I and says, hey, uh, I like this birthday thing. Could I kind of have like a, I've heard about friend birthday parties. Could I do that? And we're like, sure, you can have a friend birthday party. Let's just keep it going forever. The nonstop birthdays, right? She wanted to have a few friends over. We're like, sure. So we scheduled it. We sent invitations. We got the party together. Well, Dana got the party together. I took the boys over to the big Hawk football game in which the stud Bozeman Hawks crushed my alma mater, Billings West High School, Way to go, Hawks. Way to go. I've changed allegiances. Now, let me back up in history just a little bit. A few weeks prior to that party, we had these awesome neighbors who live behind us. They lived across our back fence for the last 18 months or so, and we love them, and we cherish them. Our kids, they climbed over the fence back and forth. We're playing with each other all the time, and they moved out because they got really sick of us. And No, not really. Their lease was up, and so they moved on, and so that meant that this rental house behind us was then available, right? And well, what do you know? Some new people uh, move in across our back fence. Now that's relevant to the story because uh, the birthday night, birthday party night comes. Malia's friends, they all gather. We boys go to the football game and the party goes on and the cute little girls who came over for the birthday party, they're out in the backyard. They're hanging out, out on the back deck. And so are these neighbor boys who moved in across the fence. They're on their trampoline, kind of yucking it up and they're around the same age, early, early adolescence or such. And well, what do you know? Those boys, new neighbor boys across the fence who we do do not know at all, they begin to do what early adolescent boys do that they think is cool. They begin to score the girls who were there for Malia's birthday party, as in physical appearance, scoring, right? Oh, you're an eight. I'd date you. Oh, you're like a six. And then they said this. They said to one of the girls, oh, you're fat. Yeah, exactly. And so the girls hung out there for a little while, and then they're like, well, this sucks. We're going inside. (laughs) So they go inside, and it's not pretty, and they're telling my wife, Dana, what happened out there, this gross, offensive things that the guys said about the girls. And so Dana's all exercised about this deal, right? And she's all fired up, and she kept the girls inside the rest of the time. And I got home from the game around 10.30, and she's telling me, and I'm getting more exercised than Dana. I'm like, well, I'm going to do something about this. It's about 10.30 at night when we got home from that game, and she's telling me about this. We're in our bedroom, and just about the time she's telling me about this, I hear those same boys go back outside, and they're jumping on the trampoline. And it's 10.30 at night. You know, we have a small neighborhood. Yards are close together. All our kids are trying to sleep. I want to go to sleep pretty quick. And I'm like, there's just too much noise out there. There's shenanigans out in the neighbor's backyard. Can't be having that. And I'm mad at him to boot, right? So I walk over to the window of our bedroom, and I just crank it open. And I said, hey! And it got real quiet. I said, shut up! And I watch these boys, like they tuck their tails and they scurry off into the house, kind of like mice off of a sinking ship. 
And I see them run inside because the lights are on in the house. And our house isn't that far from their house. And I can see they run inside and there's like some grown-up figures inside the house. And these little kids are telling the grown-up figures, and they're pointing out in the backyard. And then pretty quick, everybody in that house lines up against their windows, staring at our house. And I'm looking out our window. It's like a face-off across the yards. They want to know who the crazy guy from that house is who's yelling at them. And I'm just watching and I slam the window shut and I turn around and there's my wife, lovely wife Dana, standing there like this. And she said, nice going, pastor. Oh. Sometimes our spouses function a lot like the Holy Spirit don't they? Nice going, pastor. But isn't that really, folks, just the challenge that every single one of us face every single day, that kind of thing? To live and conduct ourselves in such a way that Jesus is more and more and more available to people, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our classmates, to our roommates, to our families, and to our kids. And now I have work to do with my neighbor, don't I? My brand new neighbors who've never met me. This is their first experience with me. And I'm, so I, you know, for the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about this, like, all right, now what am I gonna do to make this right? And, and I'm just sure because God has such a sense of humor about this kind of thing that those neighbors are probably sitting here right now and their arms are crossed going like, ain't coming back here. And if you are sitting here, I just want to say, I am really sorry. And we'll talk later, if that's all right. The temple curtain in the temple of the Most High Living God was torn down the middle the moment, the moment that Christ died. And now you and I, we who follow Jesus Christ, we are the new temples of the living God. And our role on planet Earth is to make God more and more and more available to those who do not yet have a relationship with him in as many ways as we possibly can. That's our role. That's our responsibility. It's our role and responsibility as individuals seven days a week, and it is our role and our responsibility as a church community seven days a week through this tool that we call the commons at Baxter and Love. And so we together... We're holding this place up to God and we're asking him, God, please pick this place up, figuratively speaking, of course, and use it powerfully and mightily to reach people who are far from God all over the Gallatin Valley and even beyond and then help them grow up in their faith in him. And we're intentionally choosing as a community to make this space and to make this campus available, no strings attached to people and groups and organizations simply because we, Journey Church, the church of Jesus Christ, want to be a blessing and serve the community at large because God has blessed us so immeasurably. And we want to be generous. We want to hold this place up and give it away because God has been so incredibly generous to us. And we'll get to do that for a long, long time as we continue together, both individually and as a church community, toward our full redemptive potential until Jesus Christ comes back as long as he gives us. That's what we're going to be about. Would you take your stuff and set it aside? And I just invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes, if you would, please. Would you just go to prayer? Give God your undivided attention, please. 
that temple curtain being ripped down the middle it's real easy just to kind of keep that on the pages of scripture isn't it yeah it's a nice story from a couple thousand years ago cool but I want you to know the deal kind of lands in all of our laps at some point doesn't it because the truth is the reality is that Jesus Christ came to earth to live and to die and to take your place and my place to take our sin and our shame upon himself so that we could live in relationship with God and so where it lands for all of us is in this place of asking the question have you you personally individually made the choice to step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ have you taken him up on his offer of availability and accessibility personally it's about you right now and if that's the desire of your heart today I just invite you to pray right where you're sitting a prayer that goes something like this God I want a relationship with you come into my life please please forgive me as much as I can understand right here right now God I get it I acknowledge I recognize I admit that Jesus loved me so much that he died on the cross to bring me back to God and I repent I confess I turn from my sin I turn from my own path and God from this point forward I'm going your way Help me please, God, begin life anew in you. And that choice, that decision to yield your life to God, to step into a relationship with him, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight ever. And it's so weighty that around here we ask people to tell us when they make that decision, and I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. I want you to know nobody's looking around and nobody's going to embarrass you in any way. It's just you, me, and God right now. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to just lift your hand and make eye contact with me and just say, yes, yeah, right there, right in front. Just make sure I catch your eye, please. Anyone else, just make sure I catch your eye, please. Yeah, over there. I see you there. I see you there to my right, yes. And back in the back, yes. there to my left yeah way to go I see you God is transforming you and changing both of you right now all because he died for you for you way to go and right back there all the way in the back life will never be the same folks life will never be the same for you and then There's this other piece of all of this. It's about us being people who make Jesus as available as possible to as many people as possible in as many ways as possible every single day. And I'm not going to ask you to publicly declare anything today. I am just going to ask you, though, to cement some decisions with God. Cement some commitments to him, just you and him. It might be about a spiritual conversation you've known that you've needed to have with someone for a very long time. And you've been resisting it, but the Lord's just saying, you got to do it, buddy. You got to do it. 
Or maybe for you, it's some lifestyle issue that you just need to check out of. You just need to shed it and leave it behind because you know that that thing, that behavior, that attitude is not in any way making Jesus more available. As a matter of fact, it's probably having just the opposite effect. So just leave it with the Lord today. Walk out those doors different, new, free from that thing. Whatever it is that God's Spirit has whispered to you today, just cement those next steps. Get it settled once and for all. Just get it settled. And God, we just simply say thank you. We say we love you. We're amazed and we're blown away by who you are in our lives, your goodness to us day in and day out. Make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Make us your vessels, your couriers. Make us individuals who make you as available as possible to as many people as possible in as many ways as possible. And then this church community called Journey as well. Help us do that, please, God.